This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. All righty. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evan Juggle Dark Web. Tonight, we have special guest, the other Paul. And the other Paul is a bit of a frequent flyer on the Evan Juggle Dark Web. Um, this is what, your third or fourth time being on here? Fourth or fifth, something maybe? Like, something like that. Third or fourth around there. So. Oh, you're muted. Okay. I have a lot of audio issues right here. So anyway, <laughs> um, we are ready and we're going to be discussing something that you've made some splashes about. And that's the mm. Cursed Papid Commentary, which is a, I thought it was a pretty good name for a live stream. It's a good name for a Twitter account that goes by Cur Cursed Papist Nonsense. So I think <laughs> yeah. Cursed Papist has a nice ring to it. And um you know, it's it says it's what Jerome. Uh, just can you hold up the title of it? Yes. So it says the Jerome biblical commentary for the 21st century, an absolute slap in the face to the name of a great biblical scholar saint. If he saw this, he he'd probably kill himself on the spot. Jerome was the one who translated the Latin Vulgate. Is Correct. Yeah. Okay. He 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 produced so. the Latin Vulgate. Um, among other things, he was he was a basically a biblical scholar of his day. Um, uh, John the fact they're putting his name on this. <laughs> oh man, it's oh, it's a real it's a real work of art. <laughs> so looks pretty big, but it's, it it also is. has the Bible in there, presumably. And is it in Latin or is it? Well, it it doesn't. So it doesn't have the the Bible like in a set text. So like what it basically just is, it's more or less like. A, a regular commentary you might find so this isn't the bible this is all just the commentary text but it does frequently like cite um or quote the biblical passages themselves but otherwise all the text is like properly because otherwise yeah, that might be considered private interpretation oh yeah i know, I know. But, but what's funny um reading your bible for catholics kind of a no-no already but private <laughs> interpretation. i mean i mean to, to to be fair to be fair that is being um like there wasn't a complete ban per se in the middle ages although there was enough of a ban that's like it's not good well i wasn't even um, talking about back then i'm talking about like now well, well like, now it's funnily enough it's actually very much encouraged by the current pope today um i think it was as well by at least the past couple other popes like jp2 and benedict the 16th but um and it's but what's, what's funny is that this pope is very very adamant actually on on people reading the bible um so much so that he put his name to this one and that's what's so significant if if, if i if this was just a random work of catholic scholarship um and, but it there wasn't any that newsworthy but, but if but if yeah if there wasn't any foreword by a pope for example or an official endorsement by uh by a cardinal or what have you um it, i would have taken note of it but like otherwise just kind of passed by it um i, I definitely would have taken note of the fact that it does on the inside have the classic marks of orthodoxy in books printed uh, under the Roman Catholic banner. So up here, you can't 
can't really say it, but up here it says nihil obstat, which means literally nothing, nothing stands in the way or there's nothing objectionable. And then below that is imprimatur, which is uh, may it be printed. So those two things, they're both given by the Arch, uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago, which apparently is notoriously liberal. Um, but point being, those are official, at least local magisterial uh, approvals of this commentary that everything within it um, is orthodox according to Roman Catholic doctrine. Now, of course, that wasn't these. This this isn't those that imprimatur and nihil obstats. It's not given by the Pope himself. Um, that would be bonkers if it was, but it, it wasn't. It was just by the Archdiocese of Chicago. And as we're told often, oh, the local bishops can err and all that jazz. What's significant though is that this one does have the foreword by the Pope himself, and not just not just the foreword by Mr. Francis, the private theologian. It's a foreword literally titled under the Holy See with the with the papal emblem itself. Um, so this is um in some way meant to be a official endorsement by the see of rome itself now obviously you have roman catholic um uh, canonical like um well canon law and um the nature of of magisterial authority there's precise categories like extraordinary magisterium which is like a once in every few decades or centuries uh declaration by like an ecumenical council or by the Pope ex cathedra, which is like, it, it's defines something. Oh, I was going to ask, is this yeah. ex cathedra? No, 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 it's not. It's not. It's, it's, um, this isn't that because that's like to define a dogma. This wasn't an ex cathedra statement, nor is it even in the ordinary uh, magisterium, which is kind of just like the regular uh, teachings uh, of the Pope on an official level, um, which do have a level of binding authority, but they're not necessarily protected from all error. Um, this isn't this isn't even in that. This wasn't like promulgated by the Pope like and, and then put into like the official acts of the Roman See. But um just at least on its face, just taken in practical terms, this still was a foreword written in the name of the Holy See of Rome. And so even if it doesn't fit in the regular categories of Roman magisterial authority, this still is just prima facie an official endorsement from Rome itself, which is bad enough really right i don't know how a normal person is supposed to take it as anything other than that yeah exactly exactly i mean this is commended to regular catholics in the foreword and uh, i think maybe also in the introduction as well um from memory so and he's using yeah. his pope name as, as on the letterhead yeah yeah for, not just uh, yeah not only does he just use his um yeah pope name Fran like he uses francis at like the very subscript at the end of it um, but yeah, the, the very title, the very head title itself above the foreword is the Holy See. That's even, that's even more obvious. So normie Catholic and even beyond that is going to assume that this is more or less endorsed or sponsored at the very, you know, least, but I guess at the mm. most would be, you know, this is what is official. That would be the most, but at very least, it's endorsed or sponsored. Yes, yeah, definitely. At minimum, it's an it's a uh, honestly, I would. It's no other way to put it than just an an official endorsement. Like if a if a if a if a if a king sends you a letter, um, let's say his his official regnal name is like is like let's say Charles the Third, you know, Charles the Third. Um, but let let's say that was just his regnal name, and his and his normal name was like Greg or something. And then let's say he writes a letter, and it's just like. 
hey, Bob, I hope you're going well. Regards, Greg. So he's just writing as Greg, right? Not as the king. But the same guy sends the same man a letter um, from his eminence, Charles III, right? And he, and he gives the, like, the actual seal of the king as well. Ipso facto, that is, that is a letter being sent from the king, ex officio, from his office. Same logic, just apply it here. Holy See with the Vatican emblem by Pope Francis. This is, again, even if it doesn't fit in the official, in the regular categories of the magisterium, which I'm not saying, I never, I never have said it does. Um, even if it doesn't, it still is prima facie an official endorsement. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that, that is the significance of this commentary. And this is, you know, an evangelical Christian news gathering and commentary channel. So we don't weigh into things outside of evangelicalism all that much um you know we don't even stray into methodism that much either um but <laughs> this was one of those things that did make a larger splash you got some media attention from that i saw church I militant uh used you and maybe some other people did and it's kind of interesting about church militant because they're kind of like the anti-francis but then they're also mm. having you know milo you know, <laughs> you know, do uh, Bible readings and stuff like that. So, oh my word, the, the, I, I don't know how I feel about. I mean, in, in, in fairness, I think Milo is kind of thought of as like a self-hating homosexual or whatever. I, I don't know because like he's kind of renounced that at least in word, but I'm not sure about. I haven't I haven't checked up on him in a long time. I, I never really checked in on him in the first place, but I just thought <laughs> him enough. Bible fair reading. Enough. Church Milton selling him his Bible readings. I thought that was too weird for me. Mm, yeah, sketch. But um, but yeah. So that was that was the massive surprising thing about this. Like I did, um, I did expect that this would, in some way and at some time, make real waves in online apologetics, um, because no one had been talking about this, um, and it it, it took me being in in the in one of my local christian bookstores just kind of walking through and just happened to take a glance over at the one volume commentary section i see this big purple volume with the name jerome and i'm i'm like ooh, okay interesting. let's take a look at that um i quickly realized given the size um i just knew instinctively like jerome hadn't written that much of commentary and then looking at the title itself jerome biblical commentary for the 21st century like, okay so it's not literally something from jerome um, but then I immediately also saw with a foreword from Pope Francis and I was like, hold up here. Okay, let's take a look. I open it up. I see, yep, foreword by Pope Francis. I um, I decide to, ch to check out certain biblical passages from it. And I, and I immediately think, oh dear. Oh, wow. Why has no one talked about this? Why has no one ever brought this thing up like ever? And, and 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 in fairness, it's this is relatively new. This came out in 2022, but we're right at the end of 2023 now. So, I mean, it's it's been over a year since it was published. I think it was published around like October 2022, I think, or August. Um, so uh, the fact that it didn't catch the attention um, that surprised me. Um, but then it also, like, when I thought about it, it kind of makes sense because, like, a um, it's 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 not like the Pope's going to advertise. Hey, I wrote a foreword to this book or whatever. Um, and, and B, this is like a scholarly commentary and it is commended to lay people, but it's not like they're going out. They haven't gone out of their way to advertise it to tons of people. It looks like a um, textbook. It, it, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, but it is, it is, I'll, I'll give it this. It is quite easy to understand. They wrote very well. It is very easy to understand. That's like the one positive from it. Um, but, um, 
but but yeah, so I'll, I'll semi surprised, but then also not so surprised um, that it hasn't really been given any attention in our online apologetic circles at all. Especially because even if it was known, um, Roman apologists would definitely have an interest to like not bring it up <laughs> because this is just it, it, it's a it's a bad look at any way you cut it. Um, all right, we're gonna get into the yeah. specifics uh, cutting yeah. into it. Uh, Yelmoth has a quick question about who Jerome is, and he's the guy who translated the Latin Vulgate in the first place. That's right, yeah. The specific reason why this commentary has his name attached to it, I would yep. imagine. Uh, yeah, but you think... probably know more about him than I do. I, like, that's kind of as far as I get before I start conflating him with other church fathers. Uh, <laughs> oh, good, but... oh, good. Um, Francis, I think he himself actually in this uh thing, he actually talks about um jerome himself somewhere um not sure here or maybe it's in the introduction i don't don't fully remember in any case um but yeah jerome um for a fifth century church father um major very very famous and renowned for being like a top tier biblical scholar as ray said he translated the bible um from well, from a mix of the Greek text and Hebrew text, which was kind of unique because most of the early church used the Greek Septuagint. Um, but I think Jerome kind of used both for his translation, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but he translated that to the Latin Vulgate, which became like the 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 widely accepted edition of the Latin Bible. Now, th there was at least certain bits of the, of the, of the Old and New Testament translated into Latin before him. And that's specifically, and those are specifically called like old Latin texts. But when Jerome comes and he publishes his Vulgate, that kind of becomes the, the, the standard Latin Bible text. And he's written a lot of commentaries in the Bible, lots of letters and other and other books and other things. Um, a very angry rant against a certain Helvidius uh, for denying the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I mean, angry. The guy is seething, absolutely seething that Jerome is. Um, but yeah, that, that's what he was. Very major, major biblical scholar um, from the early church period. Um, well, and name was probably right to... about that one, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and his name was attached to this, if, wherever I read it from within the commentary or from a description elsewhere. Um, basically, he was all about the Bible. He translated the Bible and he loved it. So they kind of thought, eh, you know, Jerome, he, he kind of fits with this. Let's just slap his name on it. Why not? So I, I first wanted that, you know, since you're Australian, I kind of wanted to ask you, like, you guys had a big vote this past weekend, right? We did, yeah. As a brief detour, it's it's a very um, I'm I'm very happy about the result, but not happy about the motivations that led a lot of people to it. So basically, what happened? There was a referendum, which is a vote, um, which is a vote vote from on the, the people, people, right? On the change on the on a change to the constitution, which hasn't happened in my memory for decades yet. That's how it um, works we, in the United States, by the way. We have referendums. Yeah, exactly. And and people may think people may think about oh, what about 2016 in in gay marriage? 2016 for Australia, where unfortunately there was a positive vote for gay quote unquote mirage. Um, that wasn't a referendum. That was a plebiscite. So it wasn't in itself binding, but it was kind of like a feeler and, the, and whatever way it went, the government would just go with it informally. Um, but yeah, first referendum in decades. And it was specifically about whether to amend the constitution in order to establish a body um, called something like the voice of the parliament, which would be a allegedly representative body of indigenous or Aboriginal Australians um, that would act as a constitutional level uh, advisory body. So doesn't have legal power allegedly and that's the big that's only a lot of weight here allegedly doesn't did not would not have had um legislative power 
over over actual legislation in the federal government, but it was just going to be an advisory body that officially represents the opinions of the Indigenous. And um, what became very clear and what was exposed very quickly after the campaign first started was that it was just a political project by progressives. Um, and many of them did, in fact, intend, there's, there's video and writing, written evidence of them all admitting this, that they didn't want this to just be um, to stay as an advisory thing. They wanted to actually have end up having legislative power, just as you have in New Zealand, which they actually do kind of have like representative uh, Maori uh, legislative power in their federal government. Um, and so there was the, those intentions are very clear. And thankfully, many people were very, very loud in Australia to try to expose that to the point where when you tracked all our polls, um, they started at a, at a fairly healthy majority yes um, when this was first beginning for it. But then over time, it just very quickly collapsed into a majority no. Sure enough, when the vote came and it was a very healthy no vote, in, and this is the hilarious thing because the whole framing has been that, um, oh, this is to give Indigenous people a voice. Um, and, and the people who are against, they don't want the Indigenous to have a voice. Literally every single state, including the Northern Territory, which is where among the largest concentration of Indigenous in Australia is, um, every single state and the Northern Territory voted no. The only place to vote majority yes was the Australian Capital Territory. In other words, Whiteville. <laughs> that was the only place to vote majority yes uh, out of the states and territories in Australia. So that's what happened. And, and it was absolutely so, hilarious. <laughs> my impression is that the Australian relationship with the Aborigines is wild. It, it's, it's not really like any other. It's not like Americans and Native Americans. It's not like that at all. Like I hear there's a lot more wild stories and... <laughs> Something about not sleeping on the road uh, and like a lot of, you know, paddy wagon type services and, and stuff like that. Like, that's kind of my impression. I mean, it is, it's a very, very, very rocky relationship at best. And our indigenous, um, as far as I'm aware, kind of similar to your Native Americans, but a lot of them are like very, very low socioeconomically on the ladder. Um, very bad conditions. Uh, many of them just don't adapt well um, to the society. They can unfortunately commit a lot of crime. Uh, there was actually uh, in in Sydney where I am. There's a there's a pretty notorious riot called the Everly Street Riots in uh, Redfern, which was basically an entire like an entire street of indigenous of indigenous housing just up in flames from rioting. Um, so that was that was pretty notorious for that. Um, but otherwise you'll, you'll, you'll hear other indigenous at the same time who, including elders who are like, uh, cause this will all be taken advantage of by progressive politics to say, Hey, look, see, we need to do all this progressive stuff to make things gooder and with the indigenous, but then you'll have many indigenous, uh, figures themselves, including elders who are like, no, we don't want your progressive crap. Um, that's not how we're going to get these problems fixed. But, um, but anyway, anyway, commentary insert, again. Insert why are you gay meme. Uh, but last question, evangelical, Christian related. What was the Christian media like on this referendum? Were they pushing uh, an affirmative on yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, not like not like to the level where you have Owen Strahan going like, oh, Christian nationalism and kinism is bad. Like not, not like a full on jihad against christian nationalism not like not like that for the voice but there were so they weren't forceful about it 
But yes, otherwise the Christian establishment, including and unfortunately my own Anglican uh, Archdiocese of Sydney, um, was very much for it, like public statements somewhat in, in a way in favor of it. But but they otherwise, thankfully, they didn't make it a thing like, yes, is the you must do this or blah, blah, blah. Which I mean, like Evangelies, they don't tend to do that anyway. Um, but you do sometimes get some other figures who including one of our own public theolo- I freaking hate that title, public theologian, um, John Dixon. Do you know, do you know of him? Uh, no. Okay. Australian public theologian and historian. He, he actually has written some good stuff um, on Christianity and history. Um, but he showed, he gave his official endorsement, like, hey, I'm voting yes or whatever. And he did it. And it was just some text overlaid with him playing the didgeridoo because apparently he learned that from an Indigenous elder. So that was a bit, bit of a lot, but Okay. Um, but then, but then a bunch of other people replied under him saying, "Hey, you, 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 you should probably not be voting yes because he is evidence that it's being used for like ulterior, like ulterior motives for bad purposes. It's not what you think it is." And he was just, he was just blissfully, blissfully, yeah. He replied to them, but just in like a blissfully dismissive way, like, eh, "They nah, would never eh, do nah. that." It's yeah, it's it's just, but yeah, that's. So there's a lot of that. Evangelical establishment was very much for yes, but it wasn't like a massive, massive like psyop campaign for it. But they, but they were for it. Okay, in America, you definitely would see the psyop campaign, but they yeah, it doesn't but... really work on elections as much in America. Like it doesn't matter yeah. how much John Piper comes down from Mount Sinai to say it's okay to vote for Democrats. Evangelicals <laughs> are still the lone bulwark uh, against Democrat or lone bulwark for Republicans and. United States. Uh, anyway, I just Jerome. want to say, as we're transitioning back to the Jerome thing, I want to get a little Australian stuff off my chest because I'm curious about that. Um, uh, smash that like button to help out with the live stream as we continue uh, to grow the stream. So anyway, and I will be interacting with chat both on uh, YouTube and Rumble and maybe Twitch if you send them in on Twitch, if anyone's ever on Twitch. Um, so that said, Jerome. So let's start off with the papal commentary because I guess that's like the first place to start off with. You know, is it innocuous? And is this like the um, innocuous uh, opener to lead you into it, or are there some problems with the Pope's commentary or the, the Pope's the, forward? The Pope's forward. Um, it's it's pretty like. If you have no idea about the content of the commentary itself, it's pretty innocuous and like positive, really. Um, he just speaks about how, um, like the Jerome. The important thing is he directly names the Jerome biblical commentary itself, so it's not like just some vague text that they decided to paste in here. It was literally, and they say it in the intro. They got the Pope's permission to have a foreword, to have his foreword here. Um, so he just talks about how. Uh, the church values the word of God, basically, and people should read it. And I'm encouraging people to read the word of God. And he basically points to the Jerome Biblical Commentary as um, it's, it's very important, actually. Um, very important, actually, how he articulates it. He says, quote, It is now common for the Christian community to set aside moments to reflect on the great importance of the word of God for everyday living. The various local churches have undertaken a wealth of initiatives to make the sacred scripture more accessible to believers, to increase their gratitude for so great a gift, and to help them to strive daily to embody and bear witness to its teachings. This new Jerome biblical commentary, composed by an international team of Catholic scholars, is further evidence of this important movement within the church. So, note that. 
He's not just saying this is just a bunch of Catholic scholars interacting with the world. He is saying that there is a positive, important movement within the church, and this commentary is part of that. Um, so this is, for Francis, this is an in-house, in-church work, which is very important and very frightening once you actually see the, the content within it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's basically the foreword. It's not a, not a huge amount, nothing crazy, but... Um, but it's kind of like it's kind of like sodium on its own it's like innocuous but then once you mix it with water or in this case the content of the commentary uh how many people in the audience know their chemistry um <laughs> gotta watch your breaking bad yeah exactly what's breaking bad that's that's chemistry 101 <laughs> so uh you know covalent bonds um jesse so... we need to cook <laughs> so uh Okay, so where do we begin tackling this giant commentary um, that you've obviously read? Um, we got a question about how many Jesuits were uh, involved with writing this. And I think that's actually good to talk about because we haven't talked about the who really wrote this commentary. So um, I haven't gone into like whether there were Jesuit backgrounds for the scholars who commented. I think that's like that's mattering a lot less now that the liberalism of Rome is kind of spreading all over the place. Um, but Pope Francis himself, a Jesuit, gave the foreword, so <laughs> I can point to that. Um, but also my friend, um, Pilgrim Theology, that's his substack. Uh, we work together. I'm, I'm about to publish my own blog post on this commentary specifically. Um, but when I brought it to his attention, he decided to look at the first edition, which came out in 1968. Uh, and that was endorsed by a Jesuit cardinal and by a number of other Jesuits, and he himself was extremely influential in the Roman Magisterium. Um, so from the beginning, this project has been very heavily Jesuit uh, influenced um, for, for, for a very long time. And of course, now you have a Jesuit Pope himself giving the foreword. And so, so yeah, the, I can say that there's definitely fundamental Jesuit uh, influence <clears throat> in this commentary and its, and its prior iterations from which it's inspired. Um yeah that's that's pretty much that uh otherwise i haven't looked into how many of the contributors themselves are uh actually no we can't we can look here because they often um they'll often if they're like a jesuit priest or something they'll have sj um after their name so i can already see here the chapter on Bi the bible and ethics is written by james f keenan sj society of jesus aka jesuits um we have the commentary on Second Thessalonians written by Scott and Brodeur, SJ. Um, second, uh, second Corinthians commentary written by Maria uh, Pasuzzi, CSJ. I think that's probably a Jesuit thing. I'm not totally certain. Um, yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got actually a few of them here. So that's, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the content itself is... Uh, spicy <laughs> there's like at least four different types of catholics and i'm not super familiar with all of them um but i, I know a little bit about jesuit history mostly their time in japan oh, caused yeah. them trouble in japan and actually it was the protestants that came to japan and caused trouble um <laughs> <laughs> the dutch um but uh that being said so where do we begin to crack open this nut um, where do you, you want to begin? Where, I haven't read it, so I'm not. Well, well any, think of any 
biblical passage that is spicy on current social issues? Uh, let's start with Genesis creation account. Where do they? That's when I when I wanted to do my breakdown of the Gospel Coalition's commentary, I, I started with Genesis. Oh, because I, I knew like, like Tim Keller's like theistic evolutionist. Uh, how wild is this going to be? So I uh, made sure to check the Genesis commentary, and mate, you are in for a freaking treat. I'm telling you right now, right from the start. <laughs> um, Frick, where's the actual start page? Um, it actually starts like a few hundred pages. I, I know the the um, man. What's it called? Uh, the commentary on uh, for the Gospel Coalition on uh, was it First Corinthians six doesn't really want to get into the whole effeminacy as a mm. spend thing, which oh. a lot of Bible translations don't want to do that anymore. Uh, okay, so the Genesis commentary. Um, this is it gets off to a wild start just with the author. So the actual author of the commentary on Genesis is Roman Roman Catholic scholar Mark S. Smith. And if anyone knows about him, he's the guy who wrote a whole book about how in the earliest times in Israel, Yahweh and El were two separate gods who were later combined in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a Trinitarian, or not, I don't even know if you want to go Trinitarian, but this guy is a polytheist. I mean, so he's not—he's not himself a polytheist. He is actually a, um, a meaningful like a devout Catholic. But that's his take—his higher critical take on the Bible. Now, <clears throat> here he is after a bunch of preamble on chronology and authorship and what have you, and uh, you can guess the opinion on authorship. Um, but right at the start, the very opening words of the commentary on the text itself, it says the following. Um, for many scholars, Genesis 1 to 2 originally consisted of two separate parallel accounts consisting of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 and 2, 4, B, 2, 24. Um, and after, accordingly, humanity is created first in 1, 26 to 28, and then again in 2, 7. In context, the two creation accounts have been linked to forge a new whole or secondary unity. The first account focuses on the heavens and the earth. In the contrast, the second describing the making of the heavens and the earth. The two are tied together by a reversal of word order, forming a chiasm, a crossing pattern of two sets of words, um, so on and so forth. Um, he basically he, he points out that common scholarly opinion, but he basically says something which is actually not, it's it's all right. It's two distinct accounts, but they, they're, they're not separate. They're, they, they, they work together. It's like one one is more general and then the other one goes into more spe more specificity on the creation account. Now, the second paragraph is where it gets fun. Oh. The very first word of Genesis, Bereshit, literally in beginning of, is not a prepositional phrase in the beginning as often rendered. It starts a when clause, a temporal clause, uh, quote, when at first God created the heavens and the earth, unquote. Such when clauses followed by then clauses here probably in <coughs> verse three, are known in other major literary works, so on and so forth. Verse 1 tells the time of creation, a divine process that does not commence until verse 3. The waters in verse 2 are already present at the beginning of God's creation. Thus, contrary to popular belief, Genesis 1 does not narrate the absolute beginning of everything. Second paragraph of the commentary. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. 
And is it going to argue that there's death before the fall after that? Is it going to argue um, that? Probably. I've, I, haven't, uh, I haven't checked that. I mean, I, uh, there's so much text to honestly go through. I don't know where he would comment on uh, um, on whether this is like a sign. Like, I, I can almost tell for certain he would say that Genesis wasn't meant as a scientific text. But um, that's what the Gospel but, Coalition said. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. That, that is conjecture. But like knowing Mark S. Smith, his worldview, his commentary on what he's actually said so far, that's more than likely his opinion. Um, what's another passage you want to look at? Spicy for social issues. Uh, we had the other Philip asking for the clobber passages. The clobber passages. Let's go there. And you know what's <laughs> even funnier about oh. the uh, quote-unquote clobber passages? Uh, man, I am so good at flicking through books to get to right to the place I need to, even when they're massive like this. Um, it should be right about... Here we got sex or something, according to... Here we go. Here we go. It's funny that Philip mentions the clobber passages, my man, the other Philip, because the author literally uses the term clobber passage. Oh! In the Romans commentary, here's... Here's what, uh, wait, is it he or she? I forget. They, them, she, it, whatever. So they have female um, commenters, you said? They, they do. They do. Um, very trad of them. But in any case, <laughs> it says, the paragraph says, and this is just one paragraph, by the way. She goes on and on about this, but this is just like the main summative paragraph. Quote, because the pericope in Romans uh, 124 to 27 has been used as a, quote, clobber text to denigrate persons with same-sex orientation, it is worth reminding the reader that such a use strips the text of its social and historical context and brings it to bear on an issue Paul's own audience would never have imagined or understood. Paul's contemporaries would have been familiar with multiple types of exploitative sexual relationships, including pedophilia, prostitution, and slavery. In each case, such relationships reveal and inscribe abusive power structures. They have nothing to do with loving sexual relationships between consenting adults. Whatever contemporary moral arguments one wants, uh, wants to mount about same-sex relations, it is ethically irresponsible to use this passage in Romans 1 to close off contemporary explorations of the issues. Endorsed by the Pope, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. believe on a Straight past... Straight up 1946 li- movie. Straight up. <laughs> I, I believe in a past live stream it might have been you that said that the Catholic Church might go pro-gay before they allow women pastors or priests in their case. I might have, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that was you that said that because it was like, you know, can we name a single denomination that went pro-gay before it went uh, or women pastors and it's like the Catholic Church might be that one because I well, think we did something. Thing, I don't know if I mentioned it then, but I have mentioned it elsewhere that that is actually the case in certain anglo-catholic parishes and sex so like anglo-catholic those who don't know basically anglican but like they're romanists in the vast majority of their theology so popeless catholics you can think of it like that um a lot of them of course are very very traditional so anti-same-sex marriage across the board but there are portions of the anglo-catholic tradition if you will that are super trad very high mass so to speak high quasi-Romanist theology, but um, there are some of them who nonetheless are either pro-women's ordination or they're against women's ordination, but pro-homosexual marriage. That that does exist. That that really does exist. Um, And so I think it was on that basis where I probably said that. 
that the Roman church will probably go pro-gay before pro-women's ordination. But it's actually kind of a tight race because of the it's because the synod on synodality right now is very much exploring the issue of women deacons and not simply deaconesses in the in the in the ancient church sense of like a separate order from deacons proper, but literally ordained female deacons. That is that is being discussed. Um, so it is a tight race. Very tight. Um, so along those lines, uh, other clobber passages include First uh, Corinthians six nine. Uh, I can. I can tell you ahead of time, I actually checked that one as well. What's funny is that the author just kind of ignores the homosexuality part in it. He, he just, the commentator just says, well, Paul's saying that there's these various sins. So he goes the uh, Eugene Peterson route on that. It just it's kind just of promiscuity. No, 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 no not, not even that. No, no, here's the thing. He doesn't even comment on that bit at all. Um, he, he, the author just, I don't know if it's a he or she, but for the sake of it, he just says, Paul lists a bunch of sins and they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But he doesn't specifically talk about most of those sins, the, the commentator that is, including the one of homosexuality. So it doesn't make any comments on it at all, which is, uh, so it kind of seems like he just kind of glosses over it to avoid controversy. <laughs> seems and, like that. And you gotta, you know, I remember, you know, Calvin's commentary, which calls homosexuality the worst sin of, all, of that list, I think. Uh, Makes sense. I just think that, you know, there, there, it was a different time back then. I mean, uh, hey, it makes sense because, like, Tertullian himself, I've been looking at some, uh, looking for some quotes uh, on the, on natural relations in the Church Fathers, um, and Tertullian himself says basically that a crime against nature is a crime against God. Interesting. First uh, Timothy two, since we're on the topic of comparing how it mm -hmm. views, uh, you know, the Catholic Church on homosexuality versus female pastors, are they going to go? Uh, are they going to deny the creationist? Uh, the, the creation appeal to creation that Paul uses in first Timothy two. Let's find out. <laughs> You're going to love this too. So it's under the subtitle decorum in prayer. So uh, chapter two verses eight to 15, <clears throat> the instructions for men focus on a suitable frame of mind for women. The restrictions are more stringent. Not only must they be modest and simple in attire, but they must keep silent during instruction, presumably in the assembly. This is justified by the man's temporal priority in creation and the woman's priority in sinning. So the author is actually granting the mainstream take in the passage, but see what the author keeps to say. With a grudging concession that a woman can be saved by childbearing and modesty. Grudging concession. Such relegation of women agrees with the surface meaning of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. See the commentary there. But is hardly consonant with the important part played by Phoebe, uh, sorry, played by women in the Pauline communities. The deacon Phoebe, no, deacon, deacon, not deaconess, Phoebe carried the letter to the Romans, Romans 16.1. Priscilla played her part as a catechist with her husband, Romans 16.3, Acts 18.2, and 18.27. And several other women in the Roman churches are congratulated for their hard work for the community. Such prominence of women was not abnormal in the Jewish communities of the diaspora for several funerary inscriptions of this period exist on which women are named as the, quote, president of the synagogue. The author here is considerably more repressive of women than the Paul of the earlier letters. The instructions are not the last word for the changed social environment for today. So Woo. The, author, the author here, is that referring to the author of First Timothy? The author of First Timothy. Do you want me to read about it was that? Not in... Paul is what Shall that's I... saying. 
shall I go to the introduction on the Timothy commentary? Yes, because what that's arguing is that Paul wasn't the author of First Timothy. Well, let's find out, shall we? Once it decides to get there. <clears throat> uh, submit your uh, Bible passages uh, that you want to see. Yes, people. It's basically a continuation of my last stream <laughs> that I did on this. <laughs> Authorship. <clears throat> so what, what, what's funny about this, notice how... Um, in the, when you when when the paragraph on authorship starts, it almost sounds like the the commentator here is like starting in the middle of an argument. The 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 it doesn't start with it has been traditionally suggested that Paul was the author. However, blah blah blah, and some people challenge this because blah blah blah. The opening of this section on authorship sounds like it's starting in the middle of an argument. It, it does sound like the this commentator has like an ideological edge for this position. And let's see what it says. So authorship. It has been suggested that Paul was using a secretary, as he often did in writing or co-authoring his letters. This secretary, however, would be so different from Paul that Paul could hardly have sent the letters as his own. The writer would be an independent author. There are greater difficulties yet in attributing these letters directly to Paul. The argumentative, often explosive style of darting questions and answers, known as diatribe, of the earlier letters has given way to a flat dictatorial style in which the author merely lays down the law. He is no longer working out the theological implications of the resurrection. Rather, he is laying down observances, regulations, and safe traditional doctrine. The firm church structure he envisages has no precedent in the loose, spirit-filled leadership of the Corinthian community, nor in the house churches of the Roman Christians. Both of these could result from a development in Paul himself. Has he become a forgetful old man who yearns only for peace and stability? Perhaps the greatest difficulty of all is to integrate the data of those of these letters with the with those of Acts and the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. Second Timothy is written from prison. Is this the same as the captivity in Rome when Paul was in his own lodgings but guarded by a soldier? Or is it a different and later captivity? <clears throat> the letter to Philemon was also written from captivity. Is this the same captivity? Was he released from a Roman detention and unable to fulfill uh, fulfill his plan of journeying to Spain? First Clement says, blah 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 blah. However, modern estimates of the genre of writing in Acts do not accept it as a reliable history in every respect, and certainly not as a basis for a biography of Paul. Blah, blah, blah. Um, in some, uh, where, where is it somewhere? Some hold that 2 Timothy may be genuinely by Paul. It is conventionally placed after 1 Timothy, not because it is later, but because it is shorter. It may have been written earlier. It belongs to a different genre of writing, the final testament of a well-known figure, and, that, and that's about 2 Timothy, by the way. Um... Reputable scholars hold that several of the non-Pauline letters of the New Testament are pseudepigraphal. Thus, 2 Peter, probably the latest writing in the New Testament, is almost certainly not the work of the Apostle Peter. This is perfectly compatible with the view that it is inspired. So there they are trying to save face with the new Roman, the new modern Romanist hermeneutic. I, Even if the work is pseudepigraphal, it could still be inspired. I've never heard that argument before. Well, here's the funny I, or thing. that claim before, even. Not even by liberals. Is that this is actually being uh, this is actually being entertained now by modern Roman apologists, including Trent Horn, who I love him, great guy. We've talked, and we're uh, I won't say anything further, but good guy because um, there may be something we're planning. But he has in his in some of his recent videos entertained that um, it doesn't matter if some of Paul's letters are pseudepigraphal, um, the authority of the church is still enough to consider them inspired. So he has actually entertained that exact opinion. Well, that yeah, even if he Paul's has a letter, Catholic workaround. The, and, and what's funny, what's even funnier is that he has actually 
uh, at least on one occasion, I've actually caught him listening. I think it was a debate, uh, a, a debate review he did with the Roman apologist Swan Sonner on his on Trent Horn's debate with Gavin Orland. And I remember Horn himself saying, talk when he's talking about first or second Timothy, one of them, he said Paul, and then uh, he backtracked and he said the author of da da da. And so I think he himself may actually entertain. Um, this is just my speculation, not making a certain claim about what Trent Horn believes, but I I am quite confident that Horn himself, well, A, he does entertain this exact opinion that a pseudepigraphal work can still be inspired. And B, I strongly personally suspect that Trent Horn actually does have doubts about at least some of the pastorals. So, But does he have doubts about the infancy gospels of James and all? Well, well, this is I'm just saying, like, you know, how Catholics, you know, that's basically, you know, the basis for their Mariolatry is the infancy gospels. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be, I guess it wouldn't be entirely different in that respect. <laughs> uh, so with that said, Revelation 3 9, that's a synagogue of Satan one, uh, right? Okay. Uh, oh, I haven't I wanna, checked out that one myself. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Be- yeah, this is uh, quite the hot topic these days. So. Um, Revelation 3.9. I'm going to assume they probably also think it's pseudepigraphal. That's a new word for me. The Revelation of John? Let's actually let's check that quickly. Um, authorship. The apparent author of Revelation refers to himself simply by the name John. He represents himself indirectly as a prophet and as an apocalyptic seer, that is one who has visions and auditions inspired by the spirit. Early Christian writers, for example, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus and Origen, believe that John, the son of Zebedee, an apostle of the Lord, wrote Revelation. This identification of the author seems unlikely since he never presents himself as an apostle or disciple of Christ. Furthermore, he seems to look back upon the time of the 12 apostles as a foundational past. A few in the early church and and among modern scholars have argued that Revelation is pseudonymous. That is, someone other than John Zebedee wrote the work and wanted its audience to think of it written by an apostle. Um, A presbyter in Rome by the name of Gaius led a movement against the new prophecy, later known as the Montanists. He argued that Revelation was written by Kerenthus, who was known for looking forward to an earthly, sensual kingdom of Christ, so on and so forth. So basically entertaining. Same well, and, 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 I, and, I do believe Protestants have a debate on the authorship of John. It is, yeah, uh, yeah. That that is that is a real debate in the old church. Johns, I was just yeah, exactly. There's multiple Johns, but also it was even a a genuinely acceptable opinion in the early church and the and the medieval church to even entertain whether Revelation is authentic or canonical at all. So that's not as crazy, but we can tell uh, from the context of the liberalism of this commentary, it's not exactly coming from just sober church debate uh so um, uh back to revelation 3 9 right so is, is it is it so is it 3 9 uh, uh am i getting this wrong uh make sure i have it looked up okay, i think 3 9 um 2 not 2 9 and 3 9 okay so let's check 2 9 first up oh, yeah let's see synagogue of satan is yeah 2 9 is okay it says okay, it twice. Right. So Smyrna, blah blah blah. Leadership of the church. Okay, it right. does say it tw- twice. Okay, so that's kind of based. Um, um, okay, here we go. Members of the community are literally poor. This is in Smyrna, um, but Christ declares them to be rich metaphorically. Christ, as speaker of this message, alludes to quote 
those who say that they are Jews but are not uh, but are not but a synagogue of Satan unquote um, the interpretation of this statement is contested some take and are not literally and conclude uh, that the reference is to Judaizing Christians they cite Ignatius of Antioch in support who later complains that uncircumcised people uh, Gentile Christians teaching the Jewish way of life to Christians in Philadelphia another city of the province in Asia it seems more likely that the remarks here are rhetorical and challenge the right of the local Jewish community to the name Jew. In that case, John, through the voice of Christ, is claiming the name Jew for Christians as the heirs of the Jewish heritage. This interpretation would make even better sense if Christians of Smyrna were immigrants from Judea, since Jew and Judean are expressed by the same word in Greek. The attack on the local Jewish community as a synagogue of Satan is polemical in general and a rhetorical vilification in particular. The conflict between the local Jewish and Christian communities in Smyrna is analogous to that between the movement associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran and other Jews. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, that's all it says. Actually kind of <clears throat> kind of reasonable. Yeah, it's just kind of straightforward. <laughs> and I imagine it might not be as different in, was it 3-9? Because that was 2-9? Yeah, I don't think it says anything. Uh, there's a key in the house of David. Christ promises... Oh, there's a new Jerusalem. Sort of the garments, white garments, manifestation. Um, yeah, no, nothing, nothing more about that. So pretty, pretty tame, pretty standard. Um, but I can so so nothing, nothing crazy about like uh, anti-Semitism and all that. Um, but to counteract, yes, Doug that, Wilson's going to beat them to that. <laughs> oh, gee, with his oh, upcoming no, no, book. No. <laughs> I can, however point to the commentary's opening one of its opening sections on the um where it's giving the introduction to the gospels um and what it says it has a certain section on the last days in jerusalem uh, so jesus's last days in jerusalem passion and death and the opening paragraph i just have a screenshot on my computer here so i don't have to open up in the commentary but the <clears throat> paragraph says this quote as one comes to the end of jesus's life one must strive to adhere strictly to what can be established solely by historical means since theological concerns as well as arguments over who was responsible for Jesus' death with its noxious heritage of anti-Semitism can easily interfere. <laughs> hey, man, I, I'm reliably informed by John Hagee that Caiaphas in no way represented the will of the people, will of the Jews. Absolutely not. And hey, everyone, listen to the real Sigma, Patrick Bateman. Just uh, cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. You know, because it was all a plot by Herod Antipas to kill Jesus. And yeah, absolutely. His appointments, even though Herod was, didn't care about Jesus. It was, was not kind of at all him, a collective know? action of the religio-cultural community. And yeah. that was definitely not pointed out by the authors of scripture themselves. Let's just, uh, nope, 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 nope. nope. Uh, okay, we got some requests coming in. So let's start off with... Uh, Psalm 137.9. Uh, I don't know okay. that psalm off the top of my head. Uh, and then we also have some requests for James 2. Yes, James 2. Uh, and Max Creator sent in a super chat saying, for 199 USD, Paul debunked. It's over. It's so over. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a reference to Paul not writing First Timothy, which is very new argument for me. <laughs> Probably. Because as a Protestant, like you know, like like we said, we wouldn't accept authorship. We wouldn't accept something as canon without some sort of 
apostolic op yeah. partnership. Yeah, that's or right. Or like, connection like Luke to like Paul, in, uh, Mark to Peter. Like uh, in the in the in the metaphysics of inspiration and canonicity, like something can in theory be inspired, even if we have no idea who the author is. Um, so long as it did receive the apostolic fiat, if you will. Like if an inspired apostle um by the Holy Spirit checks the work and he's like, Yep, it's without doctrinal error, great. We can consider it completely orthodox and in a sense inspired problem is um with the pseudepigraphal letters you are the letters that are claiming to be written by an apostle but they're actually not um and apart from that there is no other apostolic fiat whereas with gospels like mark and luke which were not written by apostles yet there is evidence that they were known and approved by the apostles so paul quoting from luke as scripture and possibly even calling it my gospel um as well as mark according to the best uh, to the earliest testimony um just being actually the the account of peter but written by mark as a scribe if you will um so yeah but in any case so what they say mark one, uh, psalm 137 was it or 137 139 okay I, i'm not as familiar with the naming individual yeah. psalms i like i know like okay yeah. psalm 144 179 um, what does that say Oh, blessed, blessed is the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. <laughs> one of the classic atheists. Oh, your God's so cruel in the Bible. Oh. And then I'm just, I'm just like, I don't even bother. Like the modern evangelical apologist uh, inclination to explain away things like, no, you need the historical context, not literal. I'm just like, okay. Blessed is the one who smashes your child against the rock. You being this inflammation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you what, you expect me to bow to your humanist liberal values? <laughs> what, what? Yeah, anyway, I mean, anyway. yeah. there's a problem. Um, okay, if you're ready. So, okay, interesting. So, 137 comments on it. Um, nothing about that's interesting. It kind of. Okay, Psalm ends with a scathing beatitude addressed to daughter Babylon. Uh, quote, blessed is blessed the one who pays you back, declaring those uh, declaring blessed those who dash her children against the rocks, that is Babylon. The desire for vengeance is understandable, but shocking nonetheless. It is a far cry from the command to, to love our enemies, Matthew 5.44. Um, the theme, remember, forget not, uh, wait, the, the theme, remember, dash, forget, dash, not, remember dash remember oh so it's like the pattern uh, accentuates the liturgical setting the memory transports the psalmist to exile or memory transports the psalmist to exile that inspires a self-curse if he should forget jerusalem and stirs him to remind god of the outrage so just straight up um yeah understandable but shocking desire for vengeance far cry from the command to love our enemies <sighs> lack of distinction of course shock and horror Far cry from the to from the ability to give Thomistic distinctions as uh, Catholics of old used to be able to, but uh, yeah, there you go. Someone also suggested Psalm 127, specifically quiverful. Okay, let's take a look at that. Um, <clears throat> so, if, what's interesting? This is this is the commentary in the Psalm. It's literally just like one paragraph per Psalm. So, yeah. at, at least for most of them, maybe some of them have like more about it. But, but anyway, so Psalm 127. 
The two stanzas intertwine two themes. Urban development and safety corresponds to the formation of a family. God's mysterious activity continues even when humans rest. The divine benefactor, who bestows blessings as he pleases, contrasts, excuse me, contrasts with painstaking work and lack of sleep. The second stanza consists of a proverb and a blessing. Children are a gift from God, like houses, civic safety, or daily bread. Civil defense corresponds to the protection children offer the family in legal proceedings. The quiver full of arrows is a poignant image of precaution against a shortage of reserves when danger threatens. Okay, base. Good, decent commentary. There you go. Just All right, uh, we got a request for Leviticus 2013, and then after that, we'll do the James <laughs> 217. Well, um, <clears throat> I will first go to Leviticus, the Leviticus 18 passage, because it does directly comment. Clobber passage. On the, uh, I'm, on I'm the guessing Leviticus uh, 2013 is like the death penalty one. Is it yeah, that's one where they must be stoned. Um, Wait, so, and sandwiched in between that is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, by the way. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, <laughs> maybe it's it Leviticus 1918 or is it 1919 or something? Uh, so Leviticus and it's half of a Bible verse. So <laughs> here we go. Quote Leviticus 18 22 to 23 similarly prohibits sexual practices that do not produce offspring for the community. Um, i.e. this is the words of the commentary, anal penetration between two males or intercourse with an animal. Leviticus 18.22 does not speak about the modern concept of homosexuality or homoeroticism, which in general was not known as a possible sexual orientation in antiquity. Patently false, by the way, but whatever. The anal penetration of a male by a male was a way to denigrate the penetrated one, to humiliate strangers or the inferior party in warfare. See Genesis 19 and Judges 19. That is true, by the way, but whatever. Thus, the Bible does not speak about same-sex love as one does today. The major interest of Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 is to assure that males procreate offspring for the community. Hence, it is hermeneutically inappropriate to use these verses and similar passages in the Bible to ostracize homosexual males. Well, I, I, I like to ostracize. Um, which, <laughs> you know, what are they going to do to all the references in Scripture that to homosexuality that aren't that like um like immediately oh that stuff comes back uh, he froze and he... you're back you're back oh i froze again yeah we are having some issues and that was not my internet that time so uh with that said uh yeah we're still alive uh, I'm, I'm here yeah you just okay. froze for me temporarily Okay, cool. Um, that being said, man, I lost my train of thought because, but anyway, uh, next uh, commentary on Leviticus 20, 20, uh, 13. Was yep. there anything special on that? And I guess um, maybe I mean, I'll remember it, what I was going to say. It said it on the bit on 1822, but if it. Um... But what's it going to say about the male prostitutes? This is what I was going to say. What's it going to say about the male prostitutes in the Old Testament that are mentioned multiple times? Like, I guess there's like three or four instances of male prostitutes mentioned in the Old Testament, Book of Kings and and, and stuff. What, what's it going to say on that? Like, um, oh, th that was that wasn't loving. That was be or it was wrong because it, was it probably 
it would probably say exactly that because like this part and the Romans part of the commentary all just say it's not about loving relationships, it's about exploitation and blah 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 blah. Like, you so, know yeah. you know, Ahab wasn't surrounded by gay lovers or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, twenty thirteen, it doesn't say anything more about it because it already commented on it in eighteen twenty two. So yeah, that's basically that. But but what's what's interesting is just how direct um in the in the Romans passage and Leviticus eighteen twenty two and twenty thirteen, the most explicit passages um, against homosexuality, even more so than First Corinthians six, because whereas that is hinging on one or two words, and there's uh, and people try to debate what it means, even though it's very clear and obvious, um, the those Romans the Romans and Leviticus passages are much clearer because they don't just use one word; they describe the action in more detail. Um, so those are the much more direct passages against homosexuality in the Bible. But the commentators go out of their way to specifically say these passages should not be used against homosexuality. So very clear and obvious ideological agenda. Because they accept orientation as a thing. Which is a Freudian Freudian concept. It's not a biblical concept. Yeah, exactly. They accept an orientation theory. Um, But even if we take it for granted, um, they assert that this just wasn't known in antiquity, which like that's just false you know i think uh if, if i'm not mistaken the work of william loder who himself is a um who himself is pro homosexuality by the way he's pro he's pro that stuff socially uh i think he i think he claims to be a christian but he's like pro gay stuff but he has actually done honest scholarship to say well no paul says what he means and the social justice reinterpretations don't work and as far as i remember his own work even demonstrates that no something that can be considered homosexual orientation, quote-unquote, people with that actual internal disposition um, is recognized in antiquity. So, yeah. Yeah, and the other argument that they would use it to say, hey, we're pro-gay because it's just, you know, humanity's always been that, and it was suppressed by the white man's religion would be the, you know, the more gay argument, I guess. So they're trying to, like, do the whole clobber passages thing like matthew vines to kind of split the baby on this issue which uh jonah 310 i wonder if they're gonna make a racism thing about this <laughs> and you want to go into uh minor profits and yeah maybe amos 5 might be interesting as well so job psalms um isaiah oh my word they actually delineate it as isaiah and deutero isaiah that's so funny oh my word (laughs) uh can you explain that one because so basically modern critical scholarship is like well isaiah wasn't all written by isaiah there's actually a second part that starts around chapter 39 i think and that was written by later prophets in the school of isaiah quote unquote um but yeah, not only do they endorse that in this commentary, but they straight up list it as a separate thing. That's that's incredible. Um, okay. <clears throat> Joel Amos. So what was the Amos one? Uh, Amos 5, chapter 5. I don't have a specific verse. So yeah, we can talk about that before we work mm-hmm. our way left. Yeah, like- and, uh, Amos 5, 25 was the passage. Or I think was one of the passages. Let justice roll down like a mighty. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But just as roll down like water. It's just 24. Yes. I mean, 524. Okay, let's take a look at that. Um, okay, 524. I was one verse off. This is one of the woke granddaddy passages. Uh, the syntax of verse 24 usually introduces a purpose or result, i.e. stop your cultic activities so that justice flows like water, reinforcing that the Lord does not need their sacrifices. The Lord asks whether they offered sacrifices during the wilderness period. The implied answer is no. Contrary to the Pentateuch, uh, Jeremiah 7.22 denies the possibility completely. Um, yeah, uh, so kind nothing... nothing Nothing woke there. Uh, Jenna, except, three, Jenna 310 was uh, requested. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to go woke in, in Jonah to make it more about, you know, uh, racism, modern racism dynamics into it. Racism. Which is kind of interesting because I, I heard uh, one interpretation, or, you know, when Jesus talks about a sign of Jonah, that was also judgment on Israel because this was a good time in Israel's. Uh, you know, rain, I guess. And that Jonah was going to the Gentiles was, you know, so when Jesus talks about a sign of Jonah, it's not just about the death, burial, and resurrection. It's also about God going to the Gentiles as well in judgment of Israel. Yeah, so, exactly. Things, things you learn in uh, reform circles that you're not going to hear from the Disby crowd. Um, um, so Jonah 3... 10. Let's open up there. I need to find a page number. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Mark. Jonah 1074. Okay, it's all pretty close. Oh, it does have an index. All right. So, Jonah 3.10. What's that one about again? Uh, I would assume it might be a, a racism narrative. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he would, that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Uh, okay. Let's see what this is. The construction of the final verse is interesting in its doubling up of phrases. God saw their actions, quote, <clears throat> unquote, and, quote, how they turned from their evil way, unquote. God repented of the, quote, evil, uh, God, wait, uh, God repented of the, quote, evil that he had threatened and, quote, did not carry it out. One effect of this construction is to create a sense of closure and pause before moving to the next stage of the story. Also of note is the dual use of the Hebrew term ra'ah. In the first instance, it functions as an adjective, just designating the people's way or actions as evil. In the second instance, it functions as a noun describing God's plan or intention concerning Nineveh's fate. The term is used twice more in the very next verse, which shifts our attention from God's reaction to the Ninevites to Jonah's reaction to God's decision. So there you go. Uh, 2 Samuel 11. David and Bathsheba. Oh, yeah, yeah, the whole, yep, yeah, I know what that's going to go. Let's let's see, let's see if they go there. I was, fun fact while I'm finding it, um, in school, I, sorry, not school, in Bible college, when I did a bit on um, studying on the Old Testament, I think it was like introduction to the Old Testament or something, 
that was brought up with David and Bathsheba. Like, oh, well, maybe did David, it, well, that wasn't, it wasn't asserted like hardcore, but it was brought up as a question from a uh, female lecturer. No comment. Um, lovely lady otherwise. But she brought up, um, well, maybe did David rape Bathsheba? It was like a question of discussion, basically. I just had to roll my eyes as usual. Um, but in any case. <laughs> okay, it should be right here. Second Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba. Absalom's rebellion. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, the poetics... Uh, the story of David and Bathsheba opens the more extensive story of David's middle years. The major recent study of this story is a section in Maya Sternberg's The Poetics of Biblical Narrative, pages 190 to 222. In the spring of the year, David sent Joab with the army to ravage the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah. The text adds David himself remained in Jerusalem, imprudent perhaps, but as we know, not unusual. In the late afternoon, David was walking on the palace roof and saw a woman washing or bathing. The text offers no comment beyond she was very beautiful. Nothing untoward is mentioned. Some have blamed her. She was bathing on the roof of her house, adjoining the, adjoining the passage. The text does not say so. Dave was on the roof of his house. Nothing is said of her. Um, some have blamed the text. According to one, like a camera, it pans slowly and carelessly from her head to the toes, voluptuously naked body. <laughs> okay. Uh, absolutely, not in the, absolutely not in the text. Nothing of this kind except she was very beautiful. David seeks her identity and is told that she is well-connected and is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is Joab's armor-bearer and therefore significant among David's soldiers. David sent for her. She came. They had sex. At this point, the text notes that with the washing slash bathing, her menstrual purification was completed. She was ready to conceive. She returned to her house in due course. She sent uh, uh, a message to David, I am pregnant. Unmasked question is the unmasked question is unavoidable. Why did she tell him? The text gives no answer. Um, blah blah blah. They were not having an affair. It was a one night stand. Nothing in the text suggests she was other than dispensable, but apparently she was not. Instead, David summoned Uriah to Jerusalem. Blah 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 blah. Um, Uriah portrayed this or this or that. Wait, uh, so it's actually saying that it was a one night stand? Like he uses that terminology? Yeah, like he actually exactly says that. Um, yeah, one night stand. Nothing about uh, nothing about rape. So, wow, <laughs> that's uh, I'm gonna have to see what what the Gospel Coalition commentary says on that passage. Oh man, that, that'll be fun. <laughs> if the if the Catholics are more orthodox than the Gospel Coalition on that one, because I know the Catholics aren't gonna go. I'm pretty sure they've not gone pro gay in their uh, passages. Uh, on the clobber passages that that's fascinating that they're they're not breaking yeah. down the feminism other than this you know entertain authorship of first timothy debate that i've never heard before uh already we got a request for james 2 i don't think we covered james 2 this is like you know the biggest catholic verse 217 specifically uh This one, and I don't know how unorthodox this passage is going to be. I think this is, or I think this is going to be standard Catholic fare. I don't think that they're going to get wild on this. Um, blah, 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 blah. 
we shall see. But uh, keep sending some uh, Bible passages. Uh... <clears throat> One moment. James 2.17. That one's... Yes. Oh, okay. It's spicier than it sounds. Let's jump in. Uh, it says faith without works is dead, correct? Um, that's more directly. Let me let me look it up just to make sure because there's multiple verses in there, James. Yes, that's the that's the one two seventeen. Faith without works is dead, so on and so forth. Um, let me just whoops back to the window. Okay, First Corinthians. Meanwhile, I'm getting. I'm getting requests for uh, Judges 4 and the Deborah commentary, but I don't think, I think the Deborah commentary is actually going to be pretty tame, actually, if what we've seen. Probably so will far. be. Well, um, maybe. But yeah. what it might do, um, it may point out how the two lists of judges, one of them being in Hebrews, or the Hebrews commentary will point out how they omit Deborah. And they may say, oh, it's just men embarrassed because a woman did something or whatever. Oh, I reckon they may do that. Um, but yeah, 217, um, faith that works cannot save you, 214, continues James' reflection on faith begun in 2 verse 1. He begins an imaginary dialogue by arguing that faith to be alive must express itself in good deeds. Using the style of a Greek diatribe, James offers an illustration of the faith that saves. His detailed description captures the common plight of many in the Mediterranean world. Gumnoi refers to someone clad only in an undergarment and considered naked, um, uh, without the himatia, outer garments. The urgency of the situation emerges from the description, quote, has no food for the day, um, Greek text. This description is reminiscent of the parable of the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. The conclusion emphasizes the theme, faith without works is dead. James is not contrasting faith and works, rather a living faith, to a dead faith. I don't actually have an issue. I don't have an issue with that. Yeah, that's the thing. No, it's actually based. Yeah. It's um it's 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 funny because both um both Reformation Protestant commentators, as well as a number of faithful traditional Romanists, have commented to the same conclusion for James. It's just a number of Roman apologists today, um, as well as actually some older traditional anti-Reformation apologists from the time of the Reformation who tried to argue that this kind of puts faith and works in, in contrast. Um, so it's interesting. It's, a, it's, um, it's just, I guess it kind of makes sense because that's just a very blatantly obvious interpretation of the passage once you get to it. In, in I honesty. mean, again, my arguments against Catholicism wouldn't be the whole faith and works thing because a lot of that could be semantics um solo scripture could be a lot of semantics or you're just you know arguing past each other it would be papal authority john huss and then uh mariolatry um, those sure. those would be the guns that i would stick with because you can't justify you know immaculate conception and stuff like that and you know not ultimately attack the divinity or humanity of christ by saying that you know human nature was removed from mary and how uh, it, that, there's a lot of issues with that and obviously the idolatry that stems from it uh, pers it persists to this day and I think that has a lot to do with syncreticizing uh, matriarchal cultures uh, 
We got some requests. Acts 432, which they held everything in common. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious as to how this will go because the Catholic Church is very much about you giving to them. So <laughs> I'm not sure this is going to go in a communistic direction, which Yelamoth suggests that it will go in a communistic direction. I am not overly convinced. I think it's actually going to be pretty tame. This this will be the this will be the last one of the main commentary I do because there's also the supplementary essays, which Ooh. are incredible. <laughs> I'll say that. So the Lutherans have had some issues with the uh, you know the Luther's larger catechism, and they've talked about the annotations and essays for the modern application. Oh yeah, being super pro gay and stuff like that, and pretty woke as well. But uh, not this. Oh man. Um. Okay. So the common life of believers. This second major summary passage consists of two parts: the sharing of material resources in the Christian community, four thirty-two to thirty-five, and the example of Barnabas, four thirty-six to thirty-seven. Similar to the previous summary, two forty-two to forty-seven, Luke continues to paint an ideal portrait of the early Christian believers in Jerusalem who are in perfect unity and harmony. They are of one heart and mind in two practical ways. First, they continue to bear witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And second, they share their possessions by holding everything in common. The phrase, there was no needy person among them, alludes to Deuteronomy 15.4. Luke presents a Christian community that fulfills the OT expectation and shares material resources without strings attached, a practice that transcends Greco-Roman practice of give or take or reciprocity. The phrase at the at the apostles' feet appears three times in Acts 4.35, verse 37, and 5, verse 2, and echoes the Old Testament theme of obedience and submission. Once again, Luke underscores the importance of submission to the apostolic authority in the early church. So there you go. Pretty pretty decent in time. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a gospel coalition commentary that's more likely to do that than the Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> they, they do have some foundation that they're rebuilding on top of. Uh, that an organization like the Gospel Coalition would not have. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, you know, practical application essays or whatever that we got here. Supplementary essays, yes. Um, I'll be just give me one minute because I need to get some water. So uh, in the meantime, we got some questions in the chat. Uh, you know, I was asked why are you gay uh, because I was late, and that's been a big bugaboo online. As you know, whether people can call each other gay or you know, and and it's not uh, an issue. Uh, anyway, uh, no, I was late because you know, you know, I guess we're running on Australian time here. Uh, so, uh, other questions that we have not answered. Uh, I saw a question about the Antichrist. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, do you see the Jesuit superior general as a fulfillment of the fulfillment as the earth beast? I am not super familiar with a Jesuit superior general I, or S JSG, I guess is, would be the acronym that I might be more familiar with. Uh, I mean, it's possible, but I'm not overly convinced that the Catholic Pope is the the antichrist i'm not overly convinced of that uh i know a lot of reformers thought that but that's not necessarily my anti uh my view on the end times in general i'm i'm somewhere around the 
historic pre-mill versus optimistic ah-mill. Uh, but uh, we got a, another question. Uh, question for Paul. Do you think, what do you think about people like Chris Klaus? Uh, yeah, I'll save that one for him because I do not know that guy. Uh, Back, you got a question about Chris Klaus. Uh, thoughts on him and the like who sit on the fence and refuse to associate with a particular church but claim we are all one. I don't know who Chris Klaus is, but um, for that um, for that particular class, I just kind of say, pick a side. Pick a side. Don't be naive. Because um, biblical, because Holy Scripture is particular doctrinal content. And it's just a reality that once you get into that, you're going to side with one group or another over others in different areas. So, yeah. All right. So, papist commentary or social right. essays, supplemental essays. Okay. So, um, after the commentary... There's a series of supplementary essays. Some of them are interesting and decent enough. Others are, uh, you, you'll hear. So the first section of the, of the essays uh, have these articles. They're titled, quote, uh, number one, according to the scriptures, biblical interpretation prior to 1600. And then after that, interpreting the scriptures, the church and the modern Catholic biblical renewal. And then finally, the Bible as sacred scripture, revelation, inspiration, canon. So, sound decent enough. Then we get on to these ones. <clears throat> Feminist Biblical Interpretation by Barbara E. Reed. The Bible and Social Justice by Carol Dempsey. Literary Approaches to the Bible by Jean-Francois Racine and, and Gina Hens Piazza. African and African-American Biblical Interpretation by Stacey Davis. And he's my absolute favorite. Latinx Biblical Interpretation <laughs> by Francisco Lozado Jr. Asian American Approaches to the Bible by Seung I Yang and Sun Hee Jun. And then finally, The Bible and the Life of the Church, The Bible and Liturgy, The Bible and Ethics, and Ecumenism, Interreligious Relations, and the Bible. But yeah, those middle ones. <laughs> so... This is a fancy way of saying standpoint epistemology. That pretty you know, much, yeah, pretty much the idea, which is a woke concept about uh, how we all bring our different lenses into the interpretation of the text, and how you know black people and white people can't, you know, they can't interpret the passage the same exact way, but they need to combine their efforts to get the true meaning of the text, because otherwise they will not. There you go. There you go. That's the logical conclusion of it. Um, but yeah, that's sorry. I was looking at something else quickly. But uh, yeah, do you want to take a look at some samples within these essays? Let's do it. Let's do it. Give us the right, tour. Right. So here's a he's actually I got a screenshot of this one. So I'll just read it from the screenshot. This is from the Feminist Biblical Interpretation essay. Actually, I'll just go there first because this second bit, oh man. Um, so page 2000, right towards the end.
very opening paragraph. Um, Interpretation of the scriptures by women through the lens of their own experience is nothing new, but only in recent decades has there been the development of scholarly methods of feminist biblical interpretation. In this article, we define feminist, womanist, mujerista, and ecofeminist. Recount what, what was that third one? Mujerista. I think that's like I, I think that's because like womanist is like black feminism. So I think oh, mujerista really? is probably like Latino. Is probably like Latino feminism or something. That's a new word um, for me. So feminist, womanist, mujerista, and ecofeminist. What? <laughs> oh dear. Recount the work of some of the key figures in the <clears throat> development of feminist biblical interpretation. Describe the methods they use and summarize the impact and significance of feminist biblical scholarship. So it's basically a lot of it is like historical, but there's clearly a very positive, uh, positive bent to it. Um, what's important, however, um, is you can all, you can often find the um, the ideological bent of these essays, even if they're meant to just be historical by looking at like their ending paragraph. And this, this is what the ending paragraph of this essay says. Since the publication of this document, there has been much more development in the methods and use of feminist biblical interpretations so that today its description of the approach is somewhat dated, but the affirmation of its benefits has helped to allay misunderstandings and fear among Catholics. Feminist biblical interpretation has now become firmly established and well-respected in Catholic Protestant and Jewish scholarly circles and the faithful are reaping the benefits of this liberative approach. <laughs> so we got good old fashioned liberation theology that good the old Catholic fashioned. church dealt with in South America. And that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it. Here's the spicy paragraph I wanted to read. Oh, wait, as well. there's more. I'm just before that. More recently, some feminists have developed reading strategies from lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer perspectives. They show how categories that emerge in recent centuries are applied anachronistically to biblical texts to make modern day judgments, as in what we were reading earlier about how they didn't know about homosexuality back in Paul's day. Some look for insight from same-sex relationships in the Bible by figures such as Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan, examining texts in which figures transgress what is traditionally considered proper gender behavior is another approach used by such scholars. Well, Ruth and Naomi. I I'm out. <laughs> that mum and stepdaughter, Ruth and Naomi. Aren't you not supposed to uncover your parents' nakedness? <sighs> yep, that's what this. Um... Like you know, what's his face? Reuben was cursed for being his father's wiener cousin. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, that's um Absalom also. That's how it goes, yeah. <laughs> it, that's, uh, that's what it promotes in this commentary, and so that's what um, that, that's what's really amazing with this commentary. How it can still all technically say um, that there is nothing doctrinally um, doctrinally objectionable here. So we can either ask, what? How did they come to that conclusion? And again, Archdiocese of Chicago is apparently very liberal. Um, so either they acknowledge that this commentary is trying to push gay stuff and they just don't care because the archdiocese is itself for that stuff. Or it may be for it because liberal, but it's working within the technicalities of the Roman magisterial system and seeing how, look, nothing in the commentary, because as far as I'm aware, nothing in the commentary explicitly says homosexuality is not a sin. 
It just it says you can't use this to come it, after modern exactly. Day yeah, it, it says everything around that. It says everything that points in that direction, but not that exact statement itself. So technically, this commentary can get the nihil obstat, get the doctrinal approval, despite it trying to, despite it leaning directly in the direction of contradicting that doctrinal claim. So, yeah, that's that's just, and that's just the feminist essay, like two tiny paragraphs on the feminist essay. <laughs> And of course, feminism always goes into sexual degeneracy. Like, of course, historically un unbeaten trend. Let's see if there's a fun one in the social justice essay. Oh, well, it's got. <laughs> I no, haven't seen. It's got so it's got a section on rape in the essay on the Bible and, and social justice. It's got a section on racial justice. And it's got a section on. It's got a section on disability justice. Oh man, I thought you were gonna say fat justice. <laughs> I mean, you never know. It might. It's like there's ageism justice here, into religious justice, decolonizing the justice of God. Oh, this is beautiful. This stuff is just beautiful. Papally approved, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Uh. And oh, this is man. at the front of the book or the back of the book? This is at the back. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a look at a paragraph from the disability justice. Um, blah, 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 blah. Okay, final paragraph. Because again, the final paragraph of these different essays tends to be the most illustrative. Reading and interpreting the Bible for disability justice exposes a culture of ableism, which continues to be the norm for life in today's world. Ableism, conscious or unconscious, is embedded in institutions, systems, the broader culture of a society. <laughs> Translation, the assumption that people have hands they can use is a norm of <laughs> Anyway, persons with disabilities continue to be stigmatized and disenfranchised by those systems, structures, and attitudes that support ableism. Ableism limits the opportunities of persons with disabilities and reduces their inclusion in their life of their communities. To read against the grain for disability justice is to re-envision the realm of the divine that celebrates tremendous diversity, where not all the perfect in body, mind, uh, where not all are perfect in body, mind, and spirit, but where all are equal, equal, gifted, valued, cherished, and affirmed for who they are as they are. Wow. Well, I mean, there was the one article that said that Jesus was disabled post-resurrection in glorified form. So we're going to be resurrected in glorified form with our disabilities as well. I I, I think was the logic there. Yeah, guys, I think or, I think I think people are going to be thrilled when they have cerebral palsy for eternity. <laughs> what uh, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, let's go to let's go to let's go to Latinx, actually an African American biblical interpretation. And this was the school of or diocese of Chicago that wrote archdiocese of Chicago. Yep. So I'm going to read the opening and the final paragraph from this one because I have read this before. Um. So for African and African American biblical interpretation by Stacy Davis, Yas Queen. Long before becoming academics, black people read with and against the Bible. 
African and African-American biblical interpretations have been shaped by the context of historical and cultural resistance to white supremacy and validation of black humanity in spite of slavery and colonialism and their aftermath. Contemporary interpreters rely on multiple theories, including post-colonialism and intersectionality, while utilizing cultural references as resources to read biblical texts in ways that support their communities and challenge the dominance of Eurocentric biblical interpretation. Eurocentric biblical interpretation. This introduction has three parts, historical and cultural context, theory, and practice in African-American and African scholarship. Off to a banger start, honestly, every single time. Eurocentric. Um, Might you remind me where the Vatican is located? Isn't that in Tunisia, in North Africa? No. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Eurocentric biblical interpretation, ladies and gentlemen. Basically, stuff the magisterium. We Africans and African Americans want to read the Bible however we want. Yeah. Um, Now, the final paragraph. Oh, man. It's a little bit of a long one. But, oh, man, the final paragraph of this essay is a doozy. Indulge us, I should say. This essay has introduced the diversity and depth of African and African-American biblical interpretations. It was written in 2020, a year that reintroduced the world to the United States' unfinished reckoning with slavery and Jim Crow. The murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020, led to to worldwide protests with African-Americans and Africans on the continent marching in solidarity. The response in biblical studies and theological circles was swift. In June 2nd, 2020, uh, uh, 2020 statement, the Society of Biblical Literature's Council and Executive Staff wrote, quote, We are appalled at the murder of George Floyd on 25th May 2020 by police. We grieve the murder of Breonna Taylor and others who have died because of anti-blackness. We are committed to clear and unequivocal assertion that black lives matter. The, uh, the Bible matters. SBL created a Black Scholars Matter task force to support African and African-American biblical scholars as they work in a world where, quote, systemic, systematic and institutional racism, unquote, remains. And then he links to it in a, a, a URL. On June 3rd, 2020, the Catholic Theological Society of America's Board of Directors issued a statement on racial injustice and state violence, noting that, noting, quote, that our church has a tragic history of complicity in the nation's endemic racism and, uh, and an ability to recognize that complicity, unquote. The pledging, uh, the pledging, uh, sorry, and pledging the organization of a, quote, deeper engagement in our scholarship and teaching with theological contributions coming from communities directly impacted by racialized violence, including from black, womanist, feminist, indigenous, Latinx, and Asian thinkers, unquote. Including this essay about black biblical scholarship written by a black scholar makes the Jerome biblical commentary a part of the tearing down of exclusionary scholarship and assumptions regarding whose voices matter. May this work continue. Incredible. I mean, it's worth noting that all the civil rights movement really was centered in the South of the United States. It wasn't the, it wasn't the national issue like people really try to make it seem like it was. I mean, there there was to some degree, hey, blacks and whites, we can get along now. But in terms of, you know, the segregation issue, that was kind of localized or not local, regionalized, I should say. 
and Catholics aren't as big in the South. They're bigger in the North. So, it, of course, the Catholics specifically aren't going to be like the biggest church involved in the civil rights movement. Um, yeah. Even if the civil rights movement were as theologically sound to have been a part of as they try to make it seem. Because it's not like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a heretic at all. You know, he didn't, you know, deny the Trinity, deny the divinity of Christ or, you know, preach a social justice gospel and, you know, was a communist. He wasn't any of those things, right? Yeah, well... Oh, I'm really? sure if you're an American, you probably maybe that's good. I don't know. You don't research our heroes, I guess. <laughs> not all the time, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we he's like a saint here. He has his own holiday, but it's like might have also raped somebody or something. There's an FBI tape. They illegally wiretapped him. And but Ray, touch not God's anointed. They touch not God's anointed. Uh, so that that's pretty bad. Uh, was there a sexuality one? I don't. Um, not specific. Actually, it might be in the social justice one. Let's take a look. All right. Bible and justice, <clears throat> racial justice, reproductive justice. Oh, abortion. Let's, Let's get look this at video that. demonetized. <laughs> um, Let's do it. Let's see. Let's read the ending paragraph. Um, in sum, reproductive justice is an eco is an eco anthropological matter for the twenty first century because it involves the sustainability, health, and rights of the planet in general and women in particular. Overpopulation, overconsumption, overdevelopment, and overcultivation of the land are all interrelated. The leading cause of environmental degradation is population pressure that leads to overexploitation of the land and intensified stresses on the natural resources. As more people seek land for settlement, less and less land becomes available for farming to provide food for the increased population. Furthermore, old overcultivation leads to deforestation, desertification, soil erosion, soil degradation, reduced food production, um, flooding, threats to natural water supplies, resulting in health hazards to both humans and non-humans, and the death of marine life. Reproductive justice then concerns the political, religious, and cultural, cultural and social forces exerted to dominate both the planet through overpopulation and women's bodies through the denial of their reproductive rights and choices as human beings, especially for women of color. Reproductive justice involves structural and system systemic changes that are transformative and which can alleviate all the intersecting and interlocking forms of oppression that affects all life especially those in marginalized communities, particularly women of color and non-human life. One way in which a transformative change can begin is how biblical texts such as Numbers 5, 11 to 31 and Genesis 30, 38, 1 to 11, especially verses 9 to 11, are translated, read and interpreted and understood. Biblical texts such as these have been used by various interpreting communities to support political, social, cultural and religious principles, policies, teachings, beliefs and more and mores that legitimize, normalize, and obfuscate not only violence done, to, uh, uh, not only violence done to women. Wait, I think this is like a bit of a grammatical error here. Um, biblical texts such as these have been used by various interpreting communities to support political, social, and religious principles, policies, teachings, beliefs, and mores. More uh, that, that legitimate, normalize, and obfuscate not only violence done to women full stop that's a 
But it says full stop. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, there's a full stop after women. So, not only violence done to women, and then stop. <laughs> so, oh, so, so he a introduces of, a clause that. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a typo. But anyway, it goes on. In the case of Genesis 38, 1 to 11, certain religious traditions have used this text to cast contraception and practice of masturbation in negative light. Like Understanding and appreciating. Church. Yeah, exactly. Like the Catholic Church, exactly. Understanding and appreciating human sexuality as an integral part of life in all relationships has developed holistically, especially in the latter part of the 20th century and certainly within the 21st century. But unfortunately, laws governing reproductive rights and other expressions of human sexuality are still in the hands of various hegemonic powers. Thus, reading the Bible for reproductive justice is one step closer toward establishing justice for the entire planet and all communities of life in the 21st century world. Okay. Wow. It should have just stuck with the Thanos argument. Honestly, I... I would have respected you more if you just stuck with the Thanos argument rather than trying to make it a women's rights thing like more women's rights basically uh, and women of color argument like if you just had the balls which they don't have because i assume a woman wrote that uh, <laughs> if you just had the balls to say thanos malthusian ethics world's overpopulated and eugenesis argument like you know margaret sanger did back in the day i mean uh, this I guess she had the balls to do it but uh so I'd respect this, that. That's the best argument for abortion. Yeah. But instead you want to yeah. make a feminist argument, which is terrible. Yeah, exactly. This essay was written by, wait for it, Carol J. Dempsey. And, and the Malthusian ethics aren't even correct because there's so much of the world that we could probably terraform. We, you know, you know, with air conditioning, we made un, uninhabitable places habitable here in the United States. Yeah. You know, look at Arizona. It's one of the fastest growing states in the last hundred years. Why? Air conditioning. It's now <laughs> a retirement hub for people in the West. So there you go. There you go. Still vast and, and Las Vegas is one of the fastest growing cities. Why is that? It's in the middle of nowhere. Las Vegas translates to the bottoms, I think. Yeah, it's um because that, it's that doesn't a, make a lot of sense because like you can get if you can get water out there. And if it's just, it's not on a coastline, you can just endlessly expand outwards like that. It's actually the same. Um, but why is it able to do that? Air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. You've got to want to live there. But the big thing as well is that it's actually the same thing. So in Sydney, there's a there's another city within the, 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 within the greater Sydney area. There's a particular inland city called Parramatta. Um, and that that's very much further inland, but it's, no, it's not desert here. It's all lush, green and what have you. And it, it's situated and centralized along the Parramatta River, which ends up connecting to the Pacific Ocean and, and onto the Sydney Harbour itself. Um, and so it's inland. It's a, it's, a, it's a major Sydney city in, in the area, but it's inland and it can just endlessly expand out like that. So that Parramatta has, is for, for years now and still is the city with the most growth potential in greater Sydney area. Yeah, and... You know, in Las Vegas being, you know, why do people want to live there as opposed to just visiting like gamble their savings you, away? <laughs> hey, hey, some people wanted to see uh, Elvis. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the Malthusian ethics arguments just wrong, flat on his face. We can make a lot more air, areas habitable, you know, if we just didn't decolonize the 
you know, Northern Africa, I'm sure we can make that very habitable. And oh, yeah. maybe not the next 10 years, but say the next 20 years, uh, 50 years, 100 years, how many people could be living there because of technological improvements on the area? I mean, there's a certain nation last week that we talked a lot about Israel, and they've done really well technologically making that land habitable and profitable for agriculture. Right. Yep. Yep. There you go. Um, and, and yeah, water. I've given a pretty good overview of just the nature of this commentary, I guess. Um, yeah. cause like in, in some, in the areas where it's not giving crap social justice or higher critical diatribes, it's a pretty mediocre commentary. It's just, it kind of just states the obvious and maybe gives an interesting observation here or there. Um, the most value is probably in those in those ending essays, in, including even the woke ones, because they they point you to resources that if you want to research these areas, you can kind of follow them. And perhaps the scholarly commentary in the scholarly commentary itself, it's surprisingly sparse. Um, well, surprisingly sparse with citations, but I guess it's also not surprising because there's already so much text. It's double columned and it's already two thousand pages long. But the last thing they really need is footnotes. Um, but otherwise, it can still point you to some useful stuff. So yeah, there's all that. But otherwise, though, on pretty much on virtually every single passage of some modern social relevance, it's blatantly woke either woke up the wazoo, or in the case of First Corinthians six, it's just kind of passes over it. It, um, it doesn't, doesn't even do Eugene Peterson level of yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't uh, even try to yeah it, yeah basically that. So yeah, and so all of that. Um, combined with the Pope's own stamp of approval, basically, like I, I like obviously, well, people may say, well, you can't expect to read the Pope to read all two thousand pages of this before giving a forward endorsement. Um, yeah, actually, I would. Like, if I was actually asked, if I was the one being asked to endorse this two thousand page long double column text commentary, I would not give it unless I've read every single page, and that could take a very, very damn long time. And maybe they'll just say, eh, we're going to find someone else to do a forward who won't. Uh, who won't exercise that integrity and just give the forward immediately. But otherwise, yeah, if I'm if I'm asked to endorse something, I'm going to read the entire thing, no, no matter how At the very least, is. you're going to check the problem passages. Yeah, you know? exactly. At the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, you should expect the Vicar of Christ to understand the, the major social com the social controversies, especially in biblical scholarship, including within his own church, and to see, hmm, what do they say about these biblical passages? And then to go check them. Now, here's the thing. There's two possibilities. Either... The, and, and they're both pretty disastrous. Either the Pope is just that negligent, they just didn't bother checking it, or, in my opinion, more likely, given more recent revelations with the uh, the release dubia to those cardinals, as well as the synod on synodality, and, and other comments made over time, more likely the Pope has at least some idea of the libtarded content in this commentary, and he's okay with it, and he endorses it. So, yeah, either way, it's 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 pretty bad. It's pretty bad for Rome. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your insights with us. I want to let you know if you like this kind of content, subscribe to the Evangelical Dark Web if you are new. Otherwise, hit the like button on your way out, and this will be on audio podcasts as well. So don't forget to subscribe there if you're an audio listener. Um, that being said, uh, Paul, where can we find you? 
Yes, you can find me on my website with links to pretty much everything I do, theotherpaul64.com. Otherwise, my main thing is uh, my YouTube channel, uh, The Other Paul, here on YouTube. I'm also possibly going to be starting a sub stack that is exclusively for Latin writing. So I'll be publishing stuff in Latin there and possibly once I get back on it into ancient Greek. Um, pretty much for fun, for my own exercise. And I think it's genuinely helpful in many ways. So I'll be starting that soon. Keep an eye out for that. Lots of epic content. Uh, lots of, sorry, that was my phone. Lots of really epic content coming soon, including a review of this book, The Annals of the Whole World by uh, 16th century, uh, sorry, 16th or 17th century uh, Anglican Archbishop uh, James Usher. Really good history of the ancient world. Um, yeah, lots of stuff coming up. So keep an eye out for that. And on Twitter as well, at the other poll too, because the other poll is already taken and apparently it's a gay dude. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to be confused for that. Yeah. Um... <laughs> so. Uh, the other Paul, everyone, uh, thank you for coming on and enlightening us on this cur cursed papist commentary. Have a blessed night. We will catch you on the next one.